Scientists have learned a lot by looking at biological systems in a moment in time. Organs or tissues are taken out of the body of an organism and imaged as fixed sections of tissue. This has resulted in vital information that has led to many scientific breakthroughs, but to learn more we needed to see dynamics. Not just a picture or a scene, but the whole movie. To do this, science required a new tool to answer the question, how can we visualize processes inside a living organism? Enter green fluorescent protein. Known in the scientific world as GFP, it was initially identified in jellyfish as a protein that emits green light when illuminated by light in the blue to UV range. It is now being used by researchers to investigate novel applications to report a range of information from the toxicity levels in the environment to the expression of genes in living organisms. Scientists can fuse GFP to a given protein and insert it into a cell of interest. So when UV light shines onto a cell, GFP shines back, reporting the presence of the protein in question. But the story of how GFP came to be is a testament to the value of basic research. We all know Rome wasn't built in a day, and the discovery of GFP was actually in 1962. However, the transition into widespread use in the community didn't begin until over 30 years later when the paper came out in 1994, showing that GFP could be used as a biological marker in living cells. Its elegant design and ease of use sparked the imagination and excitement of scientists around the world, making it one of the most commonly used tools in biology. The discovery and development of the protein took the cumulative effort of several scientists, three of which were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for it in 2008. This is including Dr. Martin Shalfi, who is here with us today and the lead author of the seminal 1994 science paper. He's a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Columbia University, and we are hosting him here at Albert Einstein College of Medicine to talk to us about the journey to discover GFP and what it tells us about what science is and what science isn't. We'll also talk about how Dr. Shelfy implements these strategies and ideas in his work to this day, as he and his lab answer questions about the development of touch receptors in the worm C. elegans. Your hosts for today's episodes are myself, Dr. Heather Snell, a postdoc studying cerebellar contribution to motor and non-motor disorders, and Joanna Kierspiak, a senior PhD candidate studying stem cells and motor disorders. You're listening to Neuron Air, brought to you by the next generation of neuroscientists at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Bronx, New York, who explore your brain's phenomena, one scientific adventure at a time. I'm Marty Chelfi. I'm a university professor at Columbia University in the Department of Biological Sciences. And I have used the nematode Cinerobditis elegans uh, for quite a long time to study problems pertaining to the development of the nervous system and also how the sense of touch is detected. Can you tell us about the questions that you're currently addressing in, in the lab using the C elegans? So we're studying 
a number of things. So over the years, we've used genetics to identify genes that are either needed for the development of a specific type of nerve cell, a cell that responds to touch, sensory cell. And we've also obtained mutants that are where the development is fine, but the cell doesn't work. And so that's led us into uh, investigating the molecular nature of mechanosensation. So right now, what we're in the middle of studying are two problems. Uh, one problem is the question of how is touch sensed? So several years ago, we identified a channel that is the receptor of the mechanical stimulus. We'd really like to know how that channel is regulated. How does the mechanical force lead to that channel's opening? And one of the things that we're doing in that regard is to get a better understanding of what the channel actually looks like. And so we're trying to do cryo-EM to look at the structure of our particular channel. And another project stems from as a more developmental problem. At the cells that we study are uh, very simple in structures. They're easy to look at them. We put GFP in the cells. We can easily see them. And what we've known for several years but are now studying in more detail is that when the animal hatches, the nerve process, the, the neurite coming out of the cell body, runs right along and is adjacent to the muscle. So, for example, if we put red fluorescent protein in the muscle and green fluorescent protein in the nerve cell, the two colors are right next to each other. Mm -hmm. However, what we found is that at the beginning of the fourth, that's the last larval molt, these separate from each other. The surrounding skin surrounds the nerve cell pushing it away from the muscle cell. And as a result, you see a gap now between the red of the muscle and the green of the, the nerve cell. And we have had, we've known in the past of several genes that can be mutated so that this separation and this ensheathment of the cell doesn't take place. And so we're doing uh, a... Uh, we're doing several mutageneses to look at whether uh, we can identify other components that might be needed. And we've found several genes now that either uh, prevent this separation entirely or do it partially. So it's separated in some areas and not in others. And so we've been trying to use those mutants as a way to try to understand the process of ensheathment and what it what it does. So that's a, a sort of a longer range project. So why touch? Started my postdoc in uh, Sidney Brenner's lab mm -hmm. uh, in 1977, and this was I was really working on a project that had initially been started by John Sulston, and I worked with John Sulston on this. Uh, people basically understood or had an idea about the molecules that are needed that underlie a single type of sense. Mm -hmm. And that was vision. So they knew about rhodopsin. Mm -hmm. Now, 
after that, several years after that, people started to understand uh, the molecules that were needed for chemical detection. Mm -hmm. So we have odor detection mm -hmm. or um, uh, tastes or uh, internally neurotransmitters mm -hmm. and, and uh, hormones. So you have different types of receptors. Uh, so people have an idea about how chemical signaling can be done. They have an idea about how light can work as a signal. But we have a vast number of senses that work mechanically. And especially when we started this work, no one had a clue as to how that occurred and what was involved with that. And we have just a very large number of senses. We have at least five different types of cells in our skin that respond to touch, our sense of hearing is a mechanical sense, our sense of balance is a mechanical sense. When the doctor taps your, you know, just below your knee to see your reflexes, what the doctor's doing is stimulating the tendon, stretching the tendon, stretching the muscle, that stretch is detected. So there's a lot of different things. We detect blood pressure. All of these things are mechanically driven and for the most part, certainly when we started the work, no one had a clue as to what the molecules were that were needed for this. And uh, so it's still an open question about how many different things are being used in this and what are the types of molecules that are important for that. Because one would say, okay, you're doing this work in something that's very non-homologous to humans or has a low homology to humans. So how translatable is it? So the answer is... <laughs> He's like, Ugh. I know, He's I'm like, playing the devil's advocate right now. I know, but just if someone was going to ask. <laughs> this question always comes up. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate in the other direction. Okay. <laughs> we often, and maybe more so at a medical school than not, uh, have people talking about model organisms. Mm -hmm. I don't like the term model organism. I like this idea of these organisms being pioneer organisms, telling us things that we would never have understood. Mm -hmm. For example, cell death genes came out of work. A lot of things have come out of the work on C. elegans that people really had either no idea about or uh, no way of approaching. I think that the discoveries of RNA interference, of microRNAs, uh, also came out of this work. I can say that of the genes that we have studied for touch sensitivity, the homologs of, there are homologs for virtually every single one of them in uh, people, mm -hmm. for that matter, mammals. Uh, do they do exactly the same thing? Maybe, maybe not. But we are presenting, in a sense, the hypothesis that people can then go on and study in other organisms where before they wouldn't have even known where to look. Okay. In fact, virtually everything that we have found has been sort of uh, 
something that's new, but also highly conserved. Mm -hmm. We identified um, very early on a gene. It was the first transcription factor found in C. elegans. It was the first of what's called now the limb homeodomain transcription factors. It's a gene called MEC3. And we knew that this gene, when it's mutant, results in animals in which the cells do not differentiate as they normally do. So it was sort of the master control gene. We now know it's a little more complicated than that and, and so on. But it was the founding member of what is now a fairly uh, extensive class of genes that are important uh, for neuronal differentiation. So all of these things are sort of the pioneering elements of this, is that one studies these things to get a new leads on things, and the usefulness of genetics, especially of, inter of telling you not what you expect to find, but what the organism wants is telling you to is important. These are all very useful uh, ways of, of starting to approach a problem. So I've yeah, the, the whole translational question leaves a lot of people not having, I guess, as much of an appreciation for C. elegans as um, you know is I guess due to that or or appropriate for that model organism because. It's exactly those model organisms, like you said, that tell you where to look and pioneer organisms, right? <laughs> and so the um, your lab had also uh, first described the guarantor transcription factors, which I was particularly fascinated with because uh, before I came here, I was a tech and developmental lab, and we always use the term stochasticity for everything. Right, like, oh, well, these genes get on and off, and we're trying to figure out at what point this gene turns on and how, and it's like, oh, well, it's stochastic. Like, what does that even mean? And your lab was able to, to you know, look at anomalies in, in your data and then go after, um, you know, describing what this actually is, which I was like, that's cool. Like, that's that's exactly what C. elegans is, is great for, is identifying concepts in how things function, and then potentially scaling up, you know, if, if it's relevant to other systems. The guarantors, the, the, this was sort of surprising because it happened in, in two actually independent uh, instances that we were studying the effects of transcription factors on the differentiation of the touch-sensing cells. Mm -hmm. And found that uh, in in both cases that we had a transcription factor, or a a factor, a DNA binding factor, that clearly bounded DNA, but on its own could not stimulate transcription. However, when it was there with what we would call the selector gene, the one that does turn on transcription, it allowed for an increase in transcription and a more efficient increase in transcription. And so that happened 
at one point, we sort of found this and had an idea about it. And then a couple of years later, we're looking at a different transcription factor affecting a different stage in the development of the cell. And it seemed like the same thing. A DNA binding protein binds right near where the selector transcription factor uh, is binding, but it doesn't seem to stimulate anything on its own. It just makes sure that the other one works all the time. Because in this animal, we have a rather unusual situation. It's not like the vertebrate nerv nervous system where twice as many cells are made, things hook up, and then the things that are that seem to not hook up appropriately die or don't get the growth factor or whatever. These animals always make two touch-sensing cells in the head. Always. And so what allows that to be done? Why aren't there more mistakes? What guarantees that they will differentiate? And it seems to me that these transcription factors then are ensuring that other transcriptions work optimally may very well be a way around this. One of the other sort of fun things that came out of the, the study is that the second set that we found were actually a very well-known set of transcription factors, the Hox proteins. Hox proteins have been studied for years. And one of the problems about Hox proteins is that people have said, look, we get a bithorax mutation in flies or antennapedia mutations, and we can really see a change in the development. These things must be turning on a whole bunch of genes. But then when they looked to see what genes were being activated, what genes were being turned on, they couldn't find anything. Or they found very few things. And that it was sort of mysterious. What were they really doing? Well, our results give a possible explanation of why that was difficult to find. Because what we find is that the Hox proteins in our cells, when they're missing, it's not that the cells aren't made. It's that they're only made and differentiate appropriately 60% of the time. Mm -hmm. So they're not needed for the differentiation, mm -hmm. but it's only happening 60% of the time. When they're present, it's now 100% of the time. People would have been looking for an all or none effect. Is it gone? Is something there when it we're not expecting it? Is it missing in another instance? And what we're saying is, well, maybe it's not like that. Maybe what it is is look for something that changes from 100 down to 60%. That's usually not what people look for. Right. So how do you distinguish then the signal from the noise, so to speak? Because very often in biology, like you said, it's not all or none. Um, and sometimes you'll see a 20% difference, which you could attribute to just stochasticity <laughs> or something like that. Um, or perhaps there's actually something to, to, Physiologically yeah, to go after. So how have you been able to distinguish those things? Dumb luck is <laughs> <laughs> the way. Um, you know, I think one always has to question 
the data, have to ask what's going on, see if you can think. Partly, we were very fortunate that uh, people had developed uh, uh, nice methods of doing single molecule in situ hybridization. So we could actually count the number of messenger RNA molecules. And that was very important for the So sometimes techniques help mm -hmm. to see if something's there. Um, we, uh, you know, it's, it's a more general problem than how do you how do you do it? How do we notice things? What do we notice? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of always amazed that there are things that we are looking at all the time, but we haven't realized that there's a question there. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, I, I've, I, I, I have collected a few of these things. Uh, I'll give you one example. And this is when I was a graduate student. I was in a physiology department, and we would teach the medical students uh, general physiology. And there was all there was this one instructor who would get up, usually in October, and he would uh, start talking about the different types of skeletal muscle, and he would say, "Well, you know, there's." the fast twitch muscles that can go into oxygen debt and they because of that they don't need a special oxygen handling system uh, because they're only working for a very short time but there are the more postural um, muscles that need to work more continually and they do need a way of getting oxygen to them and so they've have myoglobin, and so these are the slow twitch muscles. By this time, virtually all the students are asleep, and they're nothing. And then he he does the sort of real kicker, and why he was giving this talk towards the end of October. He said, "So when you go home for Thanksgiving, now you can explain the difference between the light meat and the dark <laughs> meat of the turkey." Because <laughs> that's, the, so funny. that's the difference. And now that I've said this, I have ruined your life. You yes. are never going to look at chicken look or at turkey chicken. again so without true. knowing this. But very few people that I've met have ever asked themselves the question. They may say, I like white meat, or I like dark meat, I, you know, but have they ever asked the question, why, why are these different? What is the difference between these two things. And so there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of questions out there. There's a lot of things to observe out there. I, I don't know. I certainly didn't ask that question before I heard that person's seminar. I'm done. I, 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 I don't know if I would have ever no. picked up that sort of a distinction. Uh, but it's the an interesting problem of noticing what there is and then asking a question about what that is and uh, and working on that. So uh, we're always stuck between trying to get the experiment done and then looking at that strange thing that happened. Was that strange thing because we did the experiment wrong? Uh, that... Uh, you know, there was some impurity, there was some problem, there was some, is it worth going after, is it not? These are all very exceptionally hard questions. Uh, I, I certainly like to have people playing uh, in the lab about different things because every once in a while something interesting does come up.
On the other hand, you can play too much and not get anything yeah. done. Yep. So <laughs> that's always a problem. A slippery slope. <laughs> it's been fun getting to know Marty's work. We learned that his main interests have revolved around the kind of sensation in the form of touch receptors, particularly in their development and how the channels work. He has other fascinating interests that we discussed, but unfortunately had to cut from this particular interview because we were itching to talk about the GFP story. We wanted to know how a discovery like that comes to fruition. From the outside, one might wonder if it's a major stroke of inspiration, which it kind of was. But it was also a culmination of years of smaller, consistent moments of creativity and perseverance. Let's hear what Marty had to say about how GFP came to be as we know it today and his insights on the scientific process. So this is, is definitely a, an example of um, being at the right place at the right time. Um, to some degree, anyway. Uh, as I'll say in my talk, I we were studying CLGAMs, we were studying uh, mutants that were defective in touch. We were in the process of cloning the genes that were mutant in our various animals. And when you clone a gene, one of the first questions you want to know is, where is it expressed? And there were lots of ways of doing that, and we were in the process of looking at, at expression of the genes we were cloning. So one idea in my head, we're studying where genes are being expressed, we're, we're cloning genes needed for the development or the function of, of nerve cells. The other thing is we were, I was working on C. elegans. The elegans is transparent, so you can stick it under a microscope. You can see the cells. It's a little bit hard to see an individual nerve cell in the animal, but you can see it. And I had been giving seminars and saying, I work on a transparent animal for a long time. I go to a seminar. I hear a talk that's, uh, that tells me about this protein I had never heard of before called green fluorescent protein. And I realize if I could put that in my transparent animal, I would be able to see the cells that I want to study. I'd be able to see where the genes were expressed. I'd be able to that's watch amazing. things change. And so I got very excited in that seminar because I realized this would be a pretty interesting tool. I think that everyone else in that room worked on mice or frogs or some other organism that wasn't transparent. And so for them, uh, it wasn't a thought um, that uh, to have them. So it was the fact that for 12 years, I'd been telling people before that, that I work on a transparent <laughs> animal, and we just happen to be cloning genes and looking at gene expression uh, when somebody tells me there's... And, and when you look at gene expression with all the previous techniques, you had to fix the animals. You had to permeabilize them to get reagents in. Now it's just shine blue light to see green. Yeah, and that like... makes 
life very easy, and there's the potential for looking at it in living or tissue. So this was a very exciting possibility. Um, I think other people at that time, it was a neurobiology uh, seminar, so I think that, and it was talking about one, a, a related organism to the jellyfish that uh, Shimamura worked on. And, and so it was really looking at the neurobiology. It wasn't about cloning. It wasn't about expression. It was just, you can look at these cells simply by shining a blue light on them, and you can see where the cells are. And uh, that was really it. Uh, I found the person who was in charge of, who was in the middle of, of cloning the cDNA for GFP was Douglas Prasher, and we talked about it and set up a collaboration and had some problems getting together, but eventually we did uh, get the clone from him, and it worked. When we started giving away samples of GFP, the people that uh, would call were the heads of the lab. That seems to be the job of the head of the lab is to call for things. And they would call and they'd say, usually, my graduate student or my postdoc or my undergraduate tells me you've got something called GFP, green fluorescent. What the hell is this thing and why do they want it? And I'd explain. And they'd say, yeah, that's a great idea. Okay. Yes. We'd like, can we get it? And I'd say, Yes, but it usually was the postdoc or the grad student or the undergraduate that had heard about it, got excited about it, and started the ball rolling. And and that's really the fun part when people are doing things. I, I mentioned that uh, uh, we uh, are looking at or trying to understand the structure of our channel, trying to do cryo-EM of this. I am not in any way knowledgeable <laughs> about cryo-EM other than in a very general sense, but we have wonderful colleagues uh, that are. Joachim Frank, who got shared the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. for it, is a member of our department and is helping on this. So we have people that have the expertise. Um, but what I have really liked is the graduate student who's the main impetus of all of this is really trying many different things, talking with people, interacting with people, learning about stuff, and then bringing that back into the lab. Mm -hmm. And so the expertise doesn't act, actually have to be in the lab. The interest has to be in right. the lab, and people can then go off and learn what they're doing or, or learn different things and bring it. So it really is a partnership. I think I could think about control experiments and I know the system, right. but I don't know the, the nuts game. about yeah. nuts and bolts of the, of the actual work, but that's a, a good collaboration. So they, they say that um, a lot of our training, especially as, as grad students, is to learn how to ask the right question, given the state of the field, given your resources, given you know your own strengths and things like that. Um, so how 
Do you have any input for for how to execute coming up with with a a good question? I don't have a a, a set procedure. Uh, usually, uh, ideas for me ideas come about by talking things over, uh, looking at, at the problems. I've I've. Uh, Mooming Poo, a wonderful neurobiologist at, at Berkeley and uh, head of the Neuroscience Institute in, in China, uh, was, used to be in, uh, in our department. And I remember talking with him one day about where he gets his ideas. And he said that what he did is he looked at an introductory neuroscience textbook and he simply he didn't name which one that was, and he just went through it and said, "Oh, here's a something that's listed as something we know. How do we know that?" And so he'd go back and he'd look at what the data were that it gave, let people understand that, and then he'd say, "No, actually, the data are not very good." And he'd do an experiment, and he would either prove it or not prove what it was. And he said his ideas came from looking at an introductory textbook and seeing what everyone else believed in the field and seeing whether their beliefs were uh, justified. Wow. So that's one one approach to it. I think experiments often lead to other experiments as you do things, you notice uh, something, and you follow that uh, lead. Uh, I'm not sure I have a good plan ahead on on these things. Uh, I, I get interest in too many things. <laughs> Which as, is also something. Right, you know, learning how to focus. We read, uh, we have a journal club in our uh, that alternates with our lab meetings, mm -hmm. <coughs> and excuse me, I I would say that we sort of routinely, or I at least routinely, I think everybody in the lab now routinely basically reads a a paper, and the paper is something that's connected in some way with what we're doing, and and just asking the question: Is there anything here that relates to what we're doing? Does anything here now change what we might ask or what we might investigate? And the answer is that virtually every paper does, that there is something where we say, well, this would be an interesting question. I think one of the most um, important skills that people get as they train to be scientists is asking what should be the next question. What's what's the follow through on this? We've done X. Now what's the next step? Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. And, and so a little bit of practice comes from just reading papers and just asking oneself that question. Okay, how would I relate this to what we're doing in the lab? Or if I, it's not for me, it's for the person in the bench next to me. How how does that relate? I strongly feel that the science is the most important aspect to this. That I, one of the things, and this may be what I said in that first conversation, <laughs> one of the things that we as the heads of lab do 
that I think is a very bad thing is everybody loves to complain. I don't think you can be a scientist unless you like to complain about things. But we complain too openly. We go out in the lab and say, they didn't accept my paper or the grant got trashed or this. And the sort of implications or the, the sort of uh, reaction that we get from the people in the lab is, wow, if he or she is having problems, how in the world can I do this going forward? But, uh, you know, if this, is, if this is such a hard thing, why do I want to subject myself to this torture? <laughs> and so I think in our, in our complaining, we have sort of given the impression that it's an impossible uh, situation. When in fact, we actually all like it. We, it, th th things do work out. You put your time in, you, you ask questions, things uh, work out. Um, and so it, it's not the, the horror show that we like to spout off about. But if you're a beginning graduate student and you hear the person in the lab say, oh, the study sections are only accepting the top 10% of the grants, you say, am I in the top 10%? Am I, is this a problem? I think there's this other problem of do people actually look at the work that's done or have they tried to look for shortcuts. And I think that's a problem. I think that the one shortcut has been, uh, is this a high-profile paper, yeah. a, a journal? that, As if the journal somehow makes the paper mm -hmm. rather than the paper makes the journal. Uh, and, and is the paper good? I have, you know, the friends that uh, worked on... Um, circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Hall, one of the people that won the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. for it, once said that basically every paper in uh, circadian rhythms, or many papers in circadian rhythms, came out in nature, cell, or science. And basically each one said that the one before was completely flawed and was horrible. <laughs> and it was basically, there was a control that was sort of, it was such a hot topic that everything got published. And if you read it at one point, this was the answer. At another point, that was the answer. And then it became, it was this part of the cell or that part of the cell. Everything was different. And eventually they sorted it out. You know, they, they learned about the... But it went, it, it was considered such a hot thing mm -hmm. that it, there were flaws and that, you know, eventually got worked out, but they weren't really the, maybe the best things, but they were in high impact journals. And so it doesn't, it, there are some really good things in these journals and there are not but they're being considered by editors who are looking for what is it going to be that will be of uh, significance to our readers. Not is it 
really good science? Is it a breakthrough in science? But is this going to be a, of enough interest to, to the table? Sometimes it's both. And sometimes it, there are very good things. I looked up, uh, I did this in 2014, I looked at all of the Nobel Prizes in Medicine Physiology uh, for the previous 25 years and all of the chemistry prizes that were biologically related in the previous 25 years. And I asked, where, were, where was the first paper published? Was, where, where was it published? And the answer was uh, half of them were in Cell and Nature and Science. The other half were everywhere. And they really, it really was not uh, sort of germane. So there were some people that said, oh, well, we have something. We want, we're going to publish this. Um, for example, our paper uh, we submitted to uh, science. But the reason we submitted the GFP paper to science was because we wanted to reach the largest audience, and that had the most readership in diverse scientists, sciences. We didn't want to put it in just a cell biology journal or anything. We wanted a general uh, journal to, to put this in, and that's why we submitted it. But Sidney Brenner's paper is in genetics. John Solston, Bob Horvitz's first paper on cell lineages in developmental biology. Roger Chen's first GFP paper is in PNAS. Uh, the um, work on ubiquitin, the, the work on um, nitric oxide, all of these things were never in high-impact right. or high-profile uh, journals. They were just really good science. Yeah. Shimamura's paper on uh, a corn and GFP uh, was in a, a bioluminescence journal. You know, I think that people, there's a lot of good training that goes on. I think a lot of people have developed to be quite wonderful mm -hmm. scientists. I think that uh, every once in a while I see people uh, being, you know, we, we, we sort of put a lot of pressure on graduate students, I think. You know, they have to pass the qualifying exam. They have to defend their thesis. Mm -hmm. I, for me, the best situations for, as graduate students learn to do things is when they become colleagues. And all of these other things, the exams and all this, the, everything else sort of goes by the wayside because you're working sort of as a team to get things done. And those are, that's the most fun. Uh, and having that opportunity, I think, is, is a wonderful thing. And uh, that happens with many people, sometimes, unfortunately, not with all. Um, and, but I, I, as I go traveling, I often see people saying, well, you know, it's so frustrating or it's this or that. And it's clear that they haven't gotten yet to that point of saying, oh, actually, it's sort of a team. I'm the expert on this. I, this is 
how we we work together and so on that that's really the most fun and uh what i think we all hope for everybody as they develop it's not that they know everything it's just that it's a partnership it's mm -hmm. where uh people come in and suddenly realize that they're not technicians that they are people that are excited about the science uh, for themselves and for for what it's doing and so the the conversations are uh, I was wondering about this or I I tried this and uh, this is the result I and you're discussing it it's not okay I'm done now what do I do next sort of thing and and uh, that's really the wonderful aspect of of the training and interacting with uh, beginning scientists is that they are they do get excited about things and they do uh, bring in new perspectives. You always see these calls to action in nature about how the culture is so terrible and grad students are depressed and everything. So it's not just the PIs who are saying that things are terrible, right? It's, you know, nature itself. So but, how... But right now, it, I mean, this is like the most wonderful time to do research. I've said this several times, you know, that that we, that you people talk sometimes of the golden age of cinema or the golden age of art or the golden age of something. We're always in the golden age of science. Right now we can do more things than we've ever imagined. And uh, so to me, it's an exceptionally exciting time. Uh, and I, we have more opportunities to do things than really ever before. And I, so... To me, that's actually a wonderful thing. Uh, I have a partial solution to uh, it's it's not a good solution. It's it's a horrible solution, in fact. But I have a solution to the my experiments are not working. I feel horrible. What should I do? And it's as I say, it's not a good answer. So I mentioned this at the very beginning. I said that uh, we look for mutants, when I started the work, look for mutants that produce touch-insensitive animals. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two general ways that one can produce touch-insensitivity. You can disrupt development so the touch-sensing cell isn't made, mm -hmm. and so mutations like that identify genes needed for differentiation. Or you can have genes mutated such that the cells are made, they just don't work. And that will get at the mechanism of touch in our case. So from the very beginning, we had two areas of research. And that meant that if one wasn't working very well, we didn't... Uh, you know, it took us quite a long time to get electrophysiology going in the lab. It took a very talented postdoc to come in and, and, and start that. Uh, we were working on development, and we can switch back and forth. Right. And so the answer, uh, and, and there's another question, which to put it in a very bad way, 
why is it that individuals within a lab might be unhappy, but the head of the lab seems to be fairly happy about what's going on? And the reason is there's more than one person in the lab. And so the head of the lab can focus on whoever happens to be successful at that moment. So I would put all these together into the following approach. Work on more than one thing. Yeah. If one thing doesn't work, you cool. have, you have. Well, it's basically saying you're unhappy with how something's going. Work twice as hard. That's, that's a little hard to take, uh, <laughs> yeah. as as a bit of advice. You know, do even more. Right. Uh, but having uh, alternative mm-hmm. uh, uh, approaches or alternative things, you put your emphasis only on one thing. That can be very frustrating. Yeah. But I think the concentration is should be on doing the science. I I I, I don't I every once in a while we'll get a, a CV from someone. And instead of in the C V someone saying, Here are the four or five things that I've done that I'm most proud of in terms of what has come out of it, they will have in the CV how many citations that paper Mm -hmm. has had or whether a news and views has been written about the result. And I always think that this is an exceptional padding. It's not because that's not really why it's important. I, I, a couple of years ago, I happened to be traveling uh, and talking to the heads of two different research institutes in uh, in Europe. And the people in charge were rightly proud of the work that had been done in their research institutes. But the way they described it was horrible. They said, we have had more papers published in the last year in journals with impact factor over five or whatever the number they chose was. And uh, that's what, and, and so we've had a really wonderful year. And I said, what was discovered? And the answer in both cases was the same. I'm not really sure. <laughs> and so to me, that's the wrong, that's, that's the wrong emphasis. Right. You know, I think, I think heads of units like to be able to have some way of measuring and, mm-hmm. and everything, but this is not how we should be measuring right. science. Papers it should be, it yeah. should be what, what has been accomplished. What have you learned? What problem have you opened up? There were so many great points made in the interview by Marty. For one, as Frank Sinatra put it, it is hard you will find to be narrow of mind if you're young at heart. It was channeling a persistent childlike curiosity that drove him to be a scientist. The science and the interest has to come first. From there, you have to keep thinking about your project in new ways by reading, engaging with different types of people, and do the best work you can in spite of the demand for high impact papers, the big grants, and translational medicine. Let the work speak for itself. Marty was a recipient of the Nobel Prize because of GFP's tidal waves throughout science that continue to spread even today and will for the foreseeable future. But how he and his colleagues got there is a story in which many of us can see ourselves. The frustrations, the failures. But 
what we have to remember is that ultimately we are training ourselves to have insightful minds that can see through all of those roadblocks because the output at the end of the PhD isn't the thesis, it's the scientist. And a high quality scientist will produce high quality results throughout his or her career. While we might not all have a green light at the end of the tunnel as Marty did for his GFP story, we can find that spark or light that drives us, focus on it and let our research and actions strive towards writing our own scientific story. Your hosts for today's episode were Joanna and Heather. Visit our website, neuronair.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. Martin Chalfi. You can learn more about his work on Columbia's Department for Biological Sciences website. Follow us on social media at neuronaircast to leave comments on today's episode or to get in touch with us directly, email us at neuronairpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.